uh, Pulak. I'm here. Okay, awesome. Good to see you. Hi, it's good to see everyone here. I'm glad to have an opportunity to be here right here. Great. So I just thought I would focus on just some new efficiencies that we're seeing in this space. So, for example, um, what we're starting to see is a lot of new technology being built that continues to solve old problems. Now, this is something that I've seen spoken over and over according, over the course of the years, but um, what we're seeing is that there is an opportunity now that there hasn't been to create a lot more development more efficiently at more efficient development costs. And so this is different. The cost to develop technology three years ago is much more expensive than what we're seeing today. And so I think it's worth looking, and I think we are looking heavily at a lot of early stage companies that are going back and saying, can we solve some of the older problems with some new technologies? And what I mean by that is, can we drive engagement? Can we drive user engagement to see if there can be improvements? I had the opportunity to invest in a company recently in the workforce space. It's a mentorship platform. This is a space that has been approached over and over and over again by corporations across the board. But if anybody has watched anything through the pandemic and the great resignation, workforce engagement has become one of the top priorities across every corporation. And software tools are definitely going to be part of that solution, but they need to be in a, built in a way that drives engagement with the end user. And the solutions that we see that are utilized today by companies are not doing that. And so the companies that are being built right now, I believe, are lighter, technically, and they're going to be able to start accumulating proprietary data on that engagement. Those are going to be the companies that I'm ultimately keeping a close eye on as the growth companies for the future. They're kind of subtle in how they're trying to approach those problems. But if they track that engagement properly and we have the resources and the technology to do so today, that's going to propel those companies to actually create the proper product solving the problems more efficiently. But again, I want to focus on the cost to structure a startup. I apologize for that. Because it's also come down with a lower development cost. You have no-code solutions across the table. And this is creating an environment where just about anybody can go and create an idea and create a solution at a far less cost than available. And what does this mean overall for the market? I also believe that we're going to start to see more efficient forms of funding in early-stage technology companies. It's a highly illiquid, highly inefficient market. You cannot understand what may or may not be going on in those markets early on, or at least the traditional landscape is. But more and more, I'm starting to see these companies go to crowdfunding platforms, for instance. Sure. It's interesting, because before you may not have seen companies that um, may have had reviewed audited financials. These guys are going out there and saying, I'm ready to prepare on and to raise on a public market. I believe that this and other fund work that I'm doing is going to continue to create that overall higher efficiency in early stage investing that can continue to create more and new value opportunities, uh, not just across stages, we're talking pre-seed to seed. I think those barriers are going to continue to decline. I think the definition of what we even call it, I'm going to throw an anecdote in there because we, we, I heard somebody talking about it earlier. For the gender lens work I do, I often hear women who are generating revenue, women who are CEOs of a company generating, they often say, oh, we are pre-seed. And often, when I hear pre-seed, I think of a concept, I think of a spreadsheet, I think of an idea. If you're generating revenue, that's a, a pretty 
further along than what one might conceive. And so what I'm driving to say is that these greater efficiencies within the market, it's going to reduce those barriers across stage, but also across asset classes. So, seeing a lot of opportunity to be looking in technology, but seeing how technology can be used with other growth classes, such as real estate. Great. And I appreciate you just jumping right in there. But I have a place marker to Harjeet on that uh, stages and blurring and how things are happening. So I don't know if you're on Harjeet. But uh, first, let's let you, uh, and, and maybe Pulak, you could, because you're a little broader. You're both a technology platform and you're talking about asset classes. And then we'll turn to Anna. Here's, here's some mics. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. We're going to just pause on that, uh, Bonnie. We'll come back to you in a moment. Just going to let the panel roll through here. Okay. So uh, I'll take a quick minute to introduce myself and the space that we are in. Uh, so we are in the asset tech space, and which is very, very, very uh, close to almost everybody here. Uh, and asset tech is is one of the vertical silos in the fintech world itself. But uh, we are taking a different view of it and why we are taking and, and what is it that uh, asset tech will bring to this whole market. Uh, so just as a brief background, uh, I've been in this business uh, for the past uh, uh, 25 years. Uh, I was a founding team uh, member at uh, GSO Capital, which was one of the earliest uh, credit funds uh, spun out of uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, went on to become one of the biggest or largest credit funds. It's part of uh, Blackstone uh, now. So, and, and a thing that we, we realized, uh, and it, it kind of propagates across the uh, illiquid or private capital markets, was, uh, was that the private capital markets in one way differed very, very, uh, uh, very much from the public markets. And the big differential was the public markets had been designed to be uh, or to move towards something like uh, a straight through processing. So everything used to wo works there. The pub private markets, there was nothing equivalent to that. So they were highly fractured. The data was all over the place. The systems were not there. The processes were not there. And we were constantly struggling to build any kind of, uh, of, uh, of scale as we were building our, our system while we were at GSO. And, and it scale comes to anything. What is in the deal pipeline? Or what, what is our liquidity currently? Or, or where are the valuations? I mean, these are all questions that every manager uh, who's in the public or private markets is asking. Uh, but they don't have a clear answer. And how do you manage all of these different uh, questions? Uh, it, it, there, were, there were no good solutions. There are still no good solutions. And uh, so uh, one thing that we had discussed, and we, we, we worked on it quite a bit, was, uh, was what is it that makes you efficient? And at that point, uh, it came down to what everybody knows. As, I mean, we looked at the assembly line model and we said assembly lines were designed by Ford, but they are still being used by Tesla or by, uh, or by the chip manufacturers or, or almost everybody. How can we design uh, systems 
which are which look more like assembly lines, especially in the asset tech world. As data flows, can we think of it like a, like an assembly line and, and build systems around that? Uh, and these are essentially going to be the platforms of the future. So private capital markets did not have anything like this, and that's what we have started building out. And we have started uh, we've put together many pieces of it. There are there's a ways to go, but. That's, that's what we are doing. And, and platforms are going to be the future in many ways. And uh, you're going to switch gears completely in a way. So, in fact, your career is sort of parallel pathing, switching careers. Just, I'm, I'm so intrigued by what you're doing. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I actually have some slides. I don't know if anybody kind of picked up my slides. But that's fine. I can go without them. I'll, I'll try to wing it here. Go. Sure. Um, well, so my background is actually hedge funds, and uh, uh, what I focused on um, most of my investing career was special situations, contrarian situations, value investing, and essentially picking up on niches where a uh, few people are looking. So um, me and uh, my hedge fund partner, um, are doing exactly that, that. So we're not looking at it as a career switch. We are we're starting a company, um, a tech company, and uh, uh, the uh, the platform is in the audio space. So we're not talking about metaverse. We're not talking about you know Mr. Sugar Mountain announcing that we're going into video. We're actually looking into audio, which we think is a great niche, uh, which we think is unexplored. Nobody, very few people have actually tried to um, create, you know, a platform out of it and make something that, um, you know, is um, is revolutionary. So we think we have something. Um, and what my slides were on actually uh, what is happening in spoken word audio, and that is uh, spoken word is anything that's non-music and non-video. So we're talking about radio, we're talking about podcasts, we're talking about um, things like streaming radio. And there are two trends that are happening there. The first trend is that uh, people are listening to less music and more podcasts and more spoken word. So that's a huge trend happening in the past seven years, huge shifts there. The second shift is that um, in the spoken audio universe, People are actually listening to less radio. They are shifting. The share of radio in the past seven years has fallen from about 80% in spoken word to about 48%. That's a huge shift towards podcasting, towards audiobooks. Um, that's not my slide. That's my pitch deck, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, th that's great. <laughs> uh, we see lots of uh, we see lots of problems that nobody has solved so far. Um, yeah, to, to talk about the, uh, the size of the market, the size of the market, podcasting market, is about a billion dollars in ads, about $11 billion if you're looking into subscriptions, everything, the whole universe. And $100 billion if you're looking to spoken audio, which includes radio, right? So uh, if... Uh, podcasting is taking share away from 
radio, then we're looking at a potential market of 100 billion, which is already substantial. Um, then we're looking at a trillion dollar market, which is video. And just to give you an idea, today people, um, daily listeners of podcasts, it's about half of the U.S. population over 13, they spend two hours and six minutes on average listening to spoken word, which is found fascinating. So um, we think that that's going to increase because they spend much more time looking at videos. So we think a trillion dollar video market, spoken audio is going to cut into that as well. So what we have, the problem that we're solving is um, we're an interview platform. We think we can scale this to um, you know, a, a large percentage of the podcast. We are uh, solving a problem of extracting person from audio. A person, we're indexing podcasts, we're indexing audio content by person. Nobody else is doing it at scale right now. We're doing it. We think um, not only we're going to be able to, to index, that's one part of the innovation, but we're also going to be attaching to a lot of the personal branding, um, revenue monetization opportunities to a person in spoken audio, in spoken word, that nobody else is doing right now. So um, the platform is called Padverb. And um, we, have, we have just launched a self-upload product where we let people upload their own interviews. We, uh, we let people interview anybody. You can interview anybody in the room. You can do it in MP3 format. You don't have to do it as an RSS, real simple syndication. You can index it to your guests. And then you can personal brand yourself. You can do LinkedIn. You can do anything you want on all of the social media platforms. We have our own player. We have just closed our friends and family. Uh, my Hessian partner and myself are funding this. We have just closed our friends and family. Um, and um, we have launched two partnerships, one with an MBA star and one with um, a Broadway production company. And we are less than six months old. Uh, we're looking, uh, if anybody's interested, for indications for pre-series A post-seed, or whatever you want to call it. So that's the opportunity in spoken word audio. Thank you. And if you can introduce yourself, because you wear two hats. You're, you're, you're doing deals on behalf of your family office, and then you've hatched this baby, right? Yeah, so uh, I'm Aaron Hatton. I represent a single-family office based in Southern California. Um, the family's created um, and invested in and, um, I guess, advised technology companies for you know, the better half of the last century. Um, and the principal right now is... Um, uh, the principal is running a family office and also working on our uh, new operating company. So... When we thought about uh, structuring the family office in 2016, he wanted to make it so everything, you know, um, we would say one of our themes is like that technology is outpacing human adaption to learning about it. So the way that we've developed the family office is open APIs, SDKs, everything is, um, I guess, you know, digital. And um, 
that's what I'll talk about today. So this is one of his slides, and he probably does a much better job at um, presenting it than I do, so you got to bear with me. But Okay. So how to thrive as a family office in exponential digital times. So our key themes are the fact that technology is outpacing its human adaptability. Um, as you can see, the, the learning curve is, um, hasn't caught up to where the technology is today. So if you, if you look at where we're at today, uh, the year 2020, we believe that um, if we think about artificial intelligence and the fact that humans are usually poor substitutes for robots, um, that you know, as of today, we can simulate one human mouse brain with every piece of artificial intelligence that we develop. So we'd rather use technology to do the mundane work and let, you know, human minds flourish and be, you know, creative and thoughtful, um, you know, as to what they were built for. <clears throat> An example of this would be how Huang's law has outpaced Moore's law. So this is something that we talk a lot about. Uh, NVIDIA's actually just became the seventh um, um, largest company on the S&P 500. So um, some of our themes in the uh, family office are the rise of decentralization, the great wealth transfer, uh, obviously the rise of alternatives. We think that our advancements in AI and machine learning um, have brought us into the fourth industrial revolution. And then the three laws that we always keep in mind are Moore, Wang, and the Metcalf Law. Uh, you can see an example of here today what the, in 2004, um, the top 10 companies by market cap versus today and how, you know, most of which are shifted to technology. And then this is just an example recently um, to reinforce the trend. Got like two more. So Sky and Ray, uh, we were founded in 2016 by Michael and Camille, Camille Sikorsky. Uh, our expertise is in fintech, wealth tech, uh, machine learning, mobile and design. Uh, the family office which was originally inspired by David Swenson in terms of our uh, portfolio construction. And then kind of our thought process is, um, ha yeah, heavy alternatives. Um, we think that, um, so we're designed to be a digital family office. Artificial intelligence first, we're building everything with open APIs and then written culture is important. So we're using technology to document um, everything from day one. So as we grow, kind of the themes and thesis won't be ignored. And then the new operating company um, is a business called Kopi Wealth Studios. And it's a mobile platform um, that allows families to preserve, grow, and validate their wealth. So. Okay. So, from a, any questions from you've heard of, you know, tech tech media world, um, where I sort of completely messed up her presentation, but she overcame that. Yes. Thanks. Uh, from the last presentation and maybe from the GSO side of things, can you speak a little bit about um, 
greater cyber and heightened cyber protection to this because, you know, if you're dealing with some of the ultra high net worth folks, there, there's an expectation for that barrier. What are you doing to deliver that on service? Sure. So we use uh, AWS. So each each family can be set up in the way that they you know want to be. But we you know through our due diligence and the team's experience having you know decades in in uh, technology, um, we rely on Amazon Cloud right now. Uh, each family would get like an encryption key. Their attorney would get an encryption key that would be set up and go through like the protocol to get their data in. And then uh, once they're into the system, we use biometrics. Uh, to log them in, and then on the back end, uh, no like concierge or client service person sees their data unless uh, allowed access to. Yeah, uh, cyber is uh, is actually one of the most important pieces of uh, data that you are putting together, and this is across uh, uh, whether it's family offices or it's funds or uh, asset managers, all of them are looking for uh, for very very high level of security. So so. There are a couple of pieces to how we, we look at cyber and how we manage it. Uh, the first is external, uh, external uh, people trying to get into the system. And, and that's where, like, uh, like he mentioned, uh, it's, it's an important part where either AWS or Azure or, uh, and their security and the way they have encrypted things and the way they allow you to uh, allow access into the systems uh, they, they, they provide a number of levels of security, and, and it's up to the, uh, to the developers and, and the intelligence of the developers to, to take advantage of some of those uh, cybersecurity uh, uh, services that, uh, pro that are provided by both AWS and Amazon. But then, uh, but then the, the, the second and important part also is what if somebody is trying to uh, somebody internal is trying to get into the system, so uh, or somebody internal is trying to download data which he is not uh, he's not supposed to have access to. So again, you, you design systems where uh, access is very well controlled, and you can monitor who is doing what at any point of time. And and, and our systems are, have been created in such a way that if if somebody, for example, just is trying to download the entire investor list of uh, at, at an asset manager, uh, this will be immediately stopped. And so you have to design your systems internally also to be able to take advantage of of some of these uh, some of the features. The other part of it is. Uh, internally also, uh, I mean, the b biggest hacks that come is, is because of somebody has lost their password or their password is e easily traceable. So, so there, uh, to, uh, uh, I mean, multi-factor authentication has become a big deal. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very critical piece that, uh, that goes into it. But then IP tracking. Uh, there are so many features that are being, uh, that, that can be uh, incorporated into the design that uh, you can really, really uh, stop uh, ma ma malicious uh, peop uh, folks get getting into it. And, and finally... Sorry. Sorry. You, oh, you said finally, so I'll give you the final. Yeah, Go. yeah Go. and then the, the finally, there's one last thing which, uh, which people uh, uh, re don't realize uh, uh, quite a bit, is data which is in transit uh, between AWS and uh, in your system. 
and again, you should have your HTTPS encryptions and all of that in place. So all of those things you have to put together to put a, a proper security protocol. So two things. We, and you're going to stay around for the consumer panel. So that's where we're going to make up. Everything. I'm going to find your deck too. But Hamlet, as a cybersecurity fund investor, has fun, he invests in funds and directs. So I just said step in. If you could grab, it, grab a stool. The, the question is, I think, from Rob is, okay, it's great to optimize your data, but what about the cybersecurity aspects, broadly speaking? So you heard the, their perspectives. What are your perspectives? Uh, thanks. Uh, real quick, uh, Hamlet Yusuf, I run a venture fund. We focus on national security, defense-related technologies, so cybersecurity is a big area of, of what we invest in. The importance of cybersecurity, this probably talks a lot, a lot of stuff you all talked about earlier, is traditionally when, it, when you looked at hacks and compromises, the hackers, whether they're hacking syndicates or if they're state-backed entities, they're going after Microsoft. They're going after CIA. They're going after the State Department. They're going after big corporations, what's changed over the last several years are starting to go after what's, what we call soft targets, targets that don't have the resources, the infrastructure, and the layered uh, approach to protect their equities. So what's happening is if you have a group of Russian hackers or Chinese, North Korean, or Iranian hackers, their day job is to attack national security interests in the U.S., the U.K., the West, or elsewhere. They're using state-developed tools to unofficially target um, valuable assets at night, they can do whatever the hell they want. So the Russian government will look the other way, or the, their, their, their overlords will look the other way, and they can use that same infrastructure to go after an easier target. Well, what's an easier target? Family offices, law firms, accounting shops, um, small and mid-sized enterprises, those are becoming more and more high-value targets because they don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the best practices, they don't have the best training in place, they become an easy target. So me as a hacker, my job is to steal national security secrets. I can make up my side hustle by hacking an enterprise or entity or family office and getting away with whatever I can get away with, and I know my overlords aren't going to do anything about it. So having the right layered security, I think, is critical. Um, this is something you don't learn by going through a couple of seminars. I think the best bet is to understand what that right capital, not capital stack, what, what that right tech stack looks like and make sure you have that to, to protect your interests. So. Can I answer that question too, real briefly? Sure. Yeah, so, in response to Russian hackers, we have a team of Russian PhDs, and we're doing everything on our servers. So we're trying to create an in-house solution, uh, but uh, for more uh, commodity type and uh, data-heavy things, we're going to use AWS as well. For example, for speech-to-text, we'll use AWS, which is expensive but necessary. Any questions about the sort of technology, the companies that they're they're working on before we switch to consumer? Yeah, Greg. So I have a question on the audio project. You mentioned music is now second to spoken word in terms of people's interest. Do you have a categorization of what spoken word people are, are flocking to in terms of what what are the topics of interest? Yeah, I actually do. There was uh, an NPR uh, research that just came out, NPR Radio and Edison Research, and um, uh, I can remember from memory. So um, about 60% of people uh, are interested in engagement and connection, so anything that has to do with mental health, like 
connecting with other people, which is the, uh, I guess, the pandemic, the uh, side effect of the pandemic, um, about uh, about the same 60%. Yeah, here you go. Uh, self-improvement, 60% of podcast listeners. Uh, encouragement and positivity, 57%. Education, 46%. Um, and uh, unique perspectives, so uh, 60%. So these are, this is uh, what I just mentioned is um, among younger uh, listeners, um, the general population um, is interested, like in the major, like these, these, are, these primarily have to do with like younger, less than, let's say 45 <laughs> listeners, and uh, uh, the general population has a variety of different, you know, uh, crime, true, true crime is a big thing. Interviews. Now, we are an interview platform. We think um, a lot of the sectors are covered by interview format up to 75%. We, uh, we are not necessarily two people, but we want at least a question and answer, so maybe two co-hosts, one guest plus, one to three to five guests. Uh, that's 75% of the market. People love interviews. That's why, um, you know, it ties very well with uh, unique perspectives, especially uh, the 60%. Yeah, that's a great question. So Clubhouse actually has been um, part of the reason that spoken word audio is gaining market share. Um, the overlap is that Clubhouse right now, the way they are now, they um so-called ephemeral content, right? The content is presented in group chats and then it disappears. However, um, Clubhouse has just announced at the Wall Street Journal conference that they are moving into recording what was said. Um, so the, the feature is replays. Um, they're, doing, uh, they're doing a podcast feature as well. But we, we don't think that, um, you know, we're competing with them. We think we are very unique because we attach a person to audio and, um, you know, they're doing it in a slightly different way. Not everything is going to be replayed and put into a real symbol syndication. Um, there's a lot of copycats right now to Clubhouse as well, you know, including, you know, Facebook is coming up with something, Twitter is coming up with something. So um, it's a different format. It's nice. Uh, it has its challenges, but uh, it's different from us. Just what the world needs, another social network. Join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.